Hi, this is Sean Miller, an IP research fellow from Stanford Law School, here to talk to you about a neat new tool that uh, we've recently launched at Stanford, and welcome to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 101 of IP Fridays. Today's guest is Sean Miller of Stanford University, and he created a really cool database for um, patent litigation cases in the US with uh, the topic of patent trolls, so non-practicing entities in general. So stay tuned for this very interesting interview. But before we jump into the interview, I have some news for you. For example, Canada joined the Madrid system and the Nice system. So uh, starting from 17th of June 2019, you can designate Canada in international registrations and you can extend existing international registrations to Canada. Also, now Canada accepts classes, so the classification system, and if you have existing trademarks and want to extend them to Canada, you can now rely on the NICE class system. Also, China has updated the examination guidelines for patents. They clarified the time frame for filing divisional applications in case of non-unity. They have examples for specifying graphic user interface designs in titles of patents and how to submit the drawings for graphical user interfaces. Then they clarified that the examiner will use a problem-solution approach to determine inventive step. And there has been a clarification regarding invalidation of patents, where a combination of references uh, is examined in invalidations. So now, without further ado, we jump into the interview with Sean Miller. Today's guest on our podcast is Sean Miller. If you don't know who Sean Miller is, he is now a research fellow with Stanford Law School. He received his JD from Notre Dame Law School in 2004. Then he had a couple of stints with law firms. He received his um, PhD in economics in 2012 from George Mason University. And he has been teaching with a couple of different University like San Diego, and he joined Stanford in 2013. And uh, why he's on the show, he has created a really cool database. Thank you for being on the show, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rolf. So um, you have created the Stanford NPE, that is uh, Non-Practicing Entities Litigation Database. So tell us what this is. Sure. So this is an effort, um, basically the first major project that I started working on when I uh, started at Stanford about this time six years ago, um, where Mark, Mark Lemley and I were interested in, of course, both interested in empirical research in, in patent litigation, trying to figure out what was working, what wasn't working in the uh, U.S. 
uh, patent space. And seeing that there was no pub- publicly available resource where we could you know, figure out who the owners of patents were that are asserted in these lawsuits. And from kind of early first generation generation empirical research, uh, saw both, both well, empirical and also theoretical, realized that really that different types of patent owners would have di- different motivations for litigating and then also have different um, sort of behaviors once they were in, uh, in a dispute. And that really, if we want to run, you know, sophisticated multivariate analysis of, of different things of, you know, litigation trends, um, connecting back with patent data from the patent office, that we need to sort of have some categorization of who the patent owners were. And of course, you know, one of the big motivations, of course, is the, you know, the so-called patent trolls, who I'll, I'll call patent assertion entities, uh, phrase coined by uh, one of my friends and colleagues at Santa Clara, Colleen Chen. And um, she was also one of the motivations for what I just talked about. Um, she wrote this interesting article, I think back in 2009, called of Trolls, Davids, and Goliaths, where she's basically theoretically in a neat, concise way talking about, okay, so if you have two monster companies, Apple versus Samsung, duking it out in court, what are they going to be trying to do to each other? What do they want from that litigation? Versus if you had like a small startup going against you know, one of those big incumbent companies versus a PAE um, going after whoever they were going. And the thought was that it, intuitively, I think it makes sense that, you know, you might expect competitors to be more interested in an in, in injunction, for example, versus, um, you know, a PAE might be more interested in, you know, getting as big of a license as they can to the technology. So that that's the motivation is really we didn't have a research or we didn't have a publicly available resource for this um, type of research. And um, and so we were able to start and um, six years ago. And it's it's been a monster project because our, our ambitious goal is to basically categorize the patent owners um, in every lawsuit in the United States going back to 2000 through the present and then keep adding on to it um, and categorize them. We have a pretty complex tax, taxonomy as well with one category of practicing entities and then um, 11 different categories of patents or of uh, non-practicing entities. Mm, wow. Um, and can you give us an idea like how many lawsuits you are categorizing or how many of them did you already categorize and how many are left and like what's the status? Of course. Um so like I said, you know, uh, plug for the website, it's mpe.law.sanford.edu. And if you go there, there's a, there's a button at the top, I believe, where you can register for access to the data. Um, so we just completed, I guess, so if we look at lawsuits, patent lawsuits in the United States from 2000, filed from 2000 through the end of 2017, you're looking at around 62,000, 63,000 cases. And these are, of course, district court, the trial level cases in the United States. Um, so we haven't we haven't included any of the appeals court uh, cases out of the federal circuit. Um, but so out of 63,000 cases, call that, um, we've, for those, what, 18 years, we've categorized probably about 90% of all of them. But we've recently completed 100% of all the cases filed from 2007 through 2017. So we're kind of working our way back. Um, and then soon we're actually going to start working our way forward, add cases from 2018 and the beginning of 2019 as well. 
Wow, that's an enormous amount of data. Um, and so, so if you have 11 categories of, you say you have 11 categories of um, patent assertion, uh, patent, patent assertion entities, so PAEs? MPEs, non-practicing entities. Okay, so um, can you tell us like what, what kind of categories do you have? Like what, what are these categories? Sure. So of the 11 categories of NPEs, um, there's, so, and, and of course, apologize for the, all the acronyms. Oh, no problem. It seems like <laughs> we do law and especially in uh, patent, litig patent law. Um, but so the distinction between NP, so an NP, basically someone who does not sell products or services um, based on the patented technologies. Um, so it's broader. And then whereas a patent assertion entity, um, we see as one that's, really in the business of gaining licenses, uh, li license revenue of monetizing patents and not necessarily concerned about having anything to do with commercialization or tech. Transfer. For example, just, um, just to so, give the listeners an example, for example, most universities probably are not uh, PAEs, but still NPEs, right? Exactly. Yeah. So universities are one of our categories. We actually have a, um, we, we have two sort of university type categories one is when the university itself or also and we also lump together we have a few cases where it's a government agency is the patent owner um, or a not-for-profit research foundation a lot of those might be you know different hospitals or it might be a research consortium of several universities um, that all fit into one of our categories. We have, we assign a category, uh, six. <laughs> so we have numeric categories <laughs> for all these. Um, and then strangely, the other university one is, is way down in category two. And that's basically, um, um, that is, you could think of it as it's an IP subsidiary of a university. Mm -hmm. So like the Wisconsin alumni research foundation, which has been pretty active, um, in litigation over the years where these are, They're sort of separate business entities, but are wholly owned or mostly owned by a university. So that's a separate category. Those are two of our categories. So we also have one of our NP categories um, is analogously related to the practicing entities. So we actually keep track where a, where a party is an IP subsidiary of a product mm -hmm. company, right? So um, so that makes up that's that's four of our twelve categories. We we have two startup categories. Um, which are two of the more difficult to sort of define and, and track. But um, so we have both failed startups and um, startups that are suing that are a pre-product. And um, in both of those, we sort of, we limit our, our, our startup is more narrow. It's, it's more startup in the, in the high tech space. Um, so they get more of Silicon Valley startups. And uh, we have three categories that we think of as mostly, comprising PAEs, although not entirely. And so we have one, it's, we have a, a category called um, corporate heritage. So we think of companies like uh, Encyclopedia Britannica or Texas Instruments, maybe for a while, where a uh, long history of, um, of production, of practicing, and then sort of switching over to a predominantly um, IP monetization model mm -hmm. for a while. Um, so that's something we consider a PAE um, when we do sort of when we aggregate a couple of these categories and some research that looks at just practicing entities versus PAEs. And then the other two are also 
pretty close. So basically patent licensing firms. So what we think of is, is um, we don't have a separate category for the large patent aggregators like Intellectual Ventures or Acacia. Um, but instead what we do is we have, okay, these are, these are patent licensing firms. Um, type one is where there's the owners of the licensing firm are not the inventors. The owners or founders There's not a connection with the inventors versus we, we assign a category five are licensing firms that are uh, founded and or owned by inventors of the patents that are asserted. Mm-hmm. And those are probably, and so, and, and then another big category um, that I missed out on, of course, is we have a category just for human being mm-hmm. parties, which usually are the inventors as well. And I'm trying to th- so so um, think. so oh, what would we, be like an IBM? Yeah. IBM is generating a lot of revenue from licensing the patents, but they are still also they still also have their own research and uh, their own products sure. and yeah. So it depends, and I'm for for IBM. Um, so the short answer: IBM is going to be a practicing mm-hmm. entity, and. Um, And it would not even matter. So R and D, and you see some of these some of these big companies that'll basically um, you do research in an area um, in a specific application that then you never actually commercialize mm-hmm. that yourself. Um, so you're not actually practicing that particular patent. We don't make that distinction uh, within the database. So if if you have products and services uh, other than um, IP monetization, then you the default is you go into the practicing mm-hmm. entity bucket. I understand. For example, uh, my understanding is that IBM is generating a lot of revenue from licensing out their R&D uh, activities like researching computer chips and semiconductor manufacturing, although they still they, they don't have any own fab anymore, like pro- producing uh, semiconductors on a larger scale, right? Okay. Well, and that's interesting because then there are um, – so there's similar companies, I think, uh, is it Tessera? Mm-hmm, right. And – And then, of course, in the semiconductor space, yeah, there's a lot. There's quite a few of these where it's um, where the company does the R and D and designs the uh, the chips and whatnot, and then they they license out the actual manufacturing. And we actually do have a separate category for that as well. So we call it like a so it ba- it's basically technology development mm-hmm. companies that are. And we try to distinguish between those and patent assertion entities by uh, evidence that. You know, you're sort of having regular relationships with manufacturers who are implementing the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the one one big marker that this is someone that's sort of it's certainly somewhat subjective, but it's, so it's kind of a it, there's an you know an intent, and we look for evidence that you know this is someone that cares about um, commercialization uh, versus someone that cares more about monetization. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question about the um, database, like what kind of uh, information you are gathering and collecting. So, um, of course, you would you would uh, have the parties in the database. You would have probably you would have the outcome of the case, um, the decision. Do you also collect data about like the um, uh, the damages that were awarded or uh, something like this? Great question and. Um so we don't have anything on damages. Um, the big thing is, so we've had um, we've we've had considerable help from from um, other scholars and other companies that have litigation data, um, where a lot of that that type of data is accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, I mean, Lex Machina, for one, right, has all this wonderful um, information on um, outcomes and has their full dockets available for each case. And our idea um, is to basically have have a resource that where you can easily identify um, the, the lawsuits, the parties. And also, of course, the other big thing we include is the patents. Oh, yes. Kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of going to be much much less valuable if we don't have the patent numbers. Uh, but so having those three things, having we're identifying the case, the parties, and the patents. And um, when you do that, then you can you know you can with the patent numbers, you can sync up with all the various um, other patent data uh, resources that are out there. You know, mm-hmm. looking at how how many claims does a patent have, and uh, who was the initial owner of the patents right. versus the owner at the time of lawsuit. These has it been challenged um, or something the patent or right it, well then the separate one yeah so then you also have these litigation resources that have much more detail on what happened to the patent and our idea is to have a niche space where we basically we're focused on what are the characteristics okay, of the yes. parties the one thing yeah, and so one so a couple of things long term i would like to add to this um and so that people have that i think would be useful for research um and also for practitioners and different um uh different industries, particular industries is, you know, first, you know, so I like, I would like to identify, um, have a separate sort of tag for, um, for the, uh, PAE lawsuits where it's, it's a, uh, it's a, a IP aggregator, mm-hmm. right? So if it's intellectual ventures or Acacia or one of a handful of others, um, and then related to that, and then besides that tag also have for aggregators, but for everyone else have, um, group plaintiffs right so be able to group um first of all one thing that we do with our parties that's a little tough is right now um so if you have a parent and subsidiaries mm-hmm. um they're considered separate entities but it would be nice to be able to i mean you can think of big companies like samsung um where you have lots of different subsidiaries and it would be great to um sort of have a meta tag that was like okay this mm-hmm. is like samsung uh, that and so on the plaintiff side, do that. Actually, ideally, do that on the plaintiff and the defendant side, so people can start to see. Okay, then you would be interested, and in, if you had this meta tag, you could say, "Okay, what are all the lawsuits? You know, against all the Samsung mm-hmm. companies. What are all the lawsuits uh, brought by the Samsung companies?" And then also some. You know, one of the other things that I think would be useful would be potentially have this linkable with. Um, um, financial data for public mm-hmm. public companies right so there you would want to ident- identify all the public companies and have a that are defendants or plaintiffs actually both either or um so some bring in some of this but really keep the focus on so despite the despite the name np data database um it was because our motivation for starting this project was mps patent trolls and these type of things uh, but really what we're interested in are characteristics of the parties. Mm, right. And uh, the meta tag would be probably also very helpful because a typical strategy of the larger patent aggregators was to or is still to um, have very small little companies for each lawsuit, right? Uh, so, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Which is which is difficult in some instances to track down um, or perhaps impossible. I think there's a, there's a couple of my colleagues out there that have done some great work on this. I'm trying to maybe get a hold of their, uh, 
<laughs> their list of who they think different subsidiaries right. are for, for um so let's talk about the benefit for the users of the database uh, what would be a typical use case um that you see so with so i'm less certain um because i'm sort of I've, I've had my head in the academy for for so long, so um, I'm less certain about the uses for for practitioners. Um, other than to say, you know, having the ability to to this is still a resource because we it basically the database contains every patent infringement lawsuit going back to 2012, and with the with the uh, party names and the patents, so that if you're someone that's basically oh we have this demand letter. Um, You could very easily um, go on and see, okay, how many times has this patent has it been inserted in other cases against other parties? It'd be an easy resource to do something like that. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you're representing clients that are, you know, in certain industries or um, or even particular uh, larger companies, you, know, you have an opportunity that you can track down all the lawsuits very trivially um, that were against and, and also brought by these parties. And then again, so it's saying, you know, who's suing, who's suing particular defendants or uh, what particular plaintiffs are, who are they suing? Um, and when were they doing that? And then, so I think it's, it's an initial stop to sort of see, okay, these are the lawsuits mm. involving these parties that you care about uh, or these types of I parties. would also think that uh, you could, yeah. um, uh, so for example, if you want to protect yourself or like prevent uh, an attack from a non-practicing entity or be very well prepared you could um, maybe do some research like uh, what kind of um, npes are filing lawsuits in your particular niche uh, of the industry of the market and which of these lawsuits have been unsuccessful yes. because the npe has been uh, basically uh, the 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 defendant has won, basically. The NPE was not successful. And then you could contact these um, defendants how what their strategy was or something. You would have a really easy way to find out um, like who was sued in your field of business by these NPEs and find out about their strategy, uh, how they defended their uh, how they defended successfully against the NPE or something. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, and of course, you might need to sort of use our our data with with another resource as well, sort of especially mm -hmm. with like the outcome yes. data. You might have to go somewhere else for that. Uh, but this is this is something that's going to be um, more and more readily available. So I know there's also efforts for even the patent office right now is working on um, more comprehensive uh, data sets on um, mm. on litigation outcomes. Um, so this would be an instance where you have something an effort like ours where it's really it's a lot of uh, mm. you know, a lot of sweat of the brow um, to do research on who these parties are and and then to categorize them um, so you have your your neat categories and then being able to merge that with um, stuff that's more uh, more easily um, grabbed from pacer from the electronic mm -hmm. filing uh, system and I would say so that's practitioners as far as so researchers whether you're like in government or in academia, um, there's really, there, there's a whole lot of uses. And, and so I, what I would say is, of course, it's, we're looking at someone that's going to do something. Someone's going to try to figure out something about patent litigation. Um, but to my mind, it's there, I can't think of many studies that you would run, um, 
where you would not be interested in accounting, at least accounting for uh, different ownership type um, with, with within uh, the, the lawsuits. And the reason, again, being because um, I think the evidence is um, there's already work out there you know, showing that a lot of these PAEs will tend to settle very quickly. Um, you know, you have other suits between smaller practicing entity competitors. Uh, they tend to maybe go longer and um, be more interested in actually getting getting a judgment. Um, and so, if you you know to give you one example, you know, so I think there's two types of studies. One is there's studies needed to basically because there's when you talk about how is is patent litigation is it sort of running optimally um, um, from a from a welfare perspective, which is a very hard question to tackle. And in my own research, I try to like kind of take bits and pieces of the problem, right? And usually it ends up being okay. Well. Um, focusing you more on the cost side versus the benefit side of, of different disputes and dispute resolution and saying, well, it looks like, you know, these type of entities are, um, um, much more frequently losing coming out on the, the losing side of these disputes or, um, these type of disputes seem, um, to take more of the court's resources, um, given what, you know, what we, th- what we think the value of the patents are, uh, but that these, so you have, that sort of study, but then you have another study that's basically um, we're interested in um, something else, right? And so I'm thinking of one that I uh, finished recently with um, on using, you know, looking at data on our mm-hmm. new inner uh, parties review uh, with the Patent Trial and Appeal Board and using the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, their, their judgment on whether or not um, someone challenged the uh, – someone challenging the validity of a patent, whether or not they have a good chance of winning um, using that determination as a proxy for high and low patent quality. So when the PTAB says, yeah, we're going to institute this petition because we, we think there's a reasonable likelihood of that, you know, some of these claims are invalid versus saying, no, we're going to deny institution because we don't, because we think the claims are probably good. Um, So there it's, of course, your, you know, that's outside of litigation had to do some coding um, outside of this data set. But there it's like, OK, you're using this this judicial decision as sort of a screen for, OK, these are the ones that seem to be higher quality versus those patents that seem to be lower quality. We still want to account for things like, OK, well, are these petitions against practicing entities or are they against PAEs? Uh, because even even if PAEs are have as high a quality of patents as practicing entities, it could be the case that the judges mm-hmm. themselves are maybe maybe they're biased against uh, PAEs, right? Um, so by including that in your analysis, you're you're able to sort of uh, screen out some of this concern. Yes, um, uh, very interesting. Um, because that uh, will become more and more important to basically find out about the patent quality by certain markers or something. Um, I think there will be a lot of new products coming to market in the coming years, um, trying to uh, find out about the patent quality. Yeah. And if you are, if the, if patents are enforceable or not or valid or not. So that's a, yes. Trying, yeah. Trying to, yes. to predict basically on early, earlier history of the patent. 
Right, uh, and it, it would be very interesting to see um, whether um, that would be very interesting for NPEs, but also for other companies that want to enforce patents, um, that information. And uh, your tool would be a perfect connection between like uh, to find out whether certain types of NPEs have enforceable patents or not enforceable patents or valid patents or invalid patents. And I think that would be very interesting also for practitioners and yeah, patent owners. Mm. Mm. So yeah, um, can no, we also briefly right. talk about like the general development of like non-practicing entities? Like it started quite early, um, like even before 2010 or so. And then there was the American Invents Act in 2011. And then there were a couple of um, landmark decisions um, coming down the Supreme Court or other courts. Can you just... Uh, talk about like what what were the important landmark decisions that changed uh, the the behavior of npes and uh, in what way did they change for example some npes were in the press quite hot like a couple of years ago and now the press is silent basically <laughs> and not talking about it anymore like what happened like what what decisions were important and what yeah. happened to to npes nowadays oh thank you for that question so um Yeah, the one thing that I think is still a mystery uh, before getting yes. to what happened to yes, uh, yes. NPs, let me focus on PAEs as well, so the, the so-called patent trolls. And um, my students and I have a have a paper in this Stanford Technology Law Review called "Who's Suing Us?" that has some sort of some some of the the trends we see in our database um, going back to 2000 on. Um, you know, sort of the share of cases that are attributable to different types of parties. Um, one thing that's one one thing that's tough and it's hard is, of course, because because most of the U.S. the trial courts um, didn't adopt electronic filing um, consistent consistently until you know 2001, 2002, 2003. So it's difficult to find um, litigation data, sort of piece together a complete 100% picture of. What what lawsuits were out there before even before 2000, let alone um, in 2001 or 2002, also two years that we haven't completed. But the reason we're holding them for the end is because they're particularly difficult. Because, for example, um, you might not have access to a complaint, so you're sort of you have the parties, and you might have some some of these cases. You might be able to get a hold of the, the, the patent number um, that was. Um, asserting the case, but you don't know anything else about it. Um, all this background, I'm really interested in. This is something that I don't think um, we don't have. We, we Because we do not have good data in, in for patent litigation in the 1990s, I don't think we have um, good answers on how mm -hmm. sort of the rise of PAEs happened. Um, my, my sense um, is that... Um, combination of loose sort of loose uh, uh, patentability requirements for functional claims that were tended to be used in software and IT patents um, combined the fact that you had a lot of these patents um, that were issued during the 90s and perhaps more in the second half of the 90s leading up to the first uh, you know the the dot-com boom and bust um, that then 
um, you had a lot of these patents that then were covering, okay, functionally how to do things um, using new technology, mm-hmm. um, new, do things that had, had been done in the past, right? Um, but using the internet, um, for example, that then became these these um, sort of a, a amorphous and there's uncertainty on you know what they actually covered. What was what were the scope of these patents? And so I think that uncertainty is actually that, that's a very useful tool for patent assertion entities. Um, in, in that um, you know you br- you 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 bring a you bring a lawsuit against a company that's doing um, if you would have done this back. 15 years ago against a company that was doing uh, e-commerce uh, on a patent that it's um, written description talks about, Hey, this is like a, this is like a first generation uh, red box where you can go rent a, rent a movie or rent a CD, which not even around anymore. Right. Um, using your credit card at the mall, put your credit card in there and then you're going to have this transaction where you'll be able to have, have the content, the media that you can rent. Um, that those claims, some of the broadest claims were written um, in language that was um, sort of um, ambiguous enough that it could mm-hmm. read on, you know, um, iTunes or something like that. And it may or may not. And you don't know how it's going to, you wouldn't know how it was going to come out until you um, were pretty deep in litigation and that a lot of rational defendants are going to say, well, hey, how about I just give this patent holder a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe several hundred thousand dollars, settle this thing as opposed to trying to fight it and risk that chance of. Um, so even before um, before eBay, right, there's even an opportunity um, where you could have an injunction even as a PAE, um, let alone going to trial and saying, hey, my whole business model infringes um, this patent. Um, so. My sense is that, you know, that was so you had new technology that the patent law um, was a little slow in responding to. Okay, these are the types of software patents, e commerce patents um, that sort of make sense to be patentable. And these are sort of the limits on those type of patents that we should have. It took a while for that to work out in the courts. Um, And that combined with, of course, a new technology that was being adopted everywhere. And then you have a have a recession where you had a lot of companies that sort of failed. Um, and so you had a lot of, uh, IP assets with, with nowhere to go, right. Other than to be used a few years later. Um, and I think so. Another thing that I think there's not enough research to know for sure, but I think I mentioned eBay in, in the mid two thousands. And I think that actually had a pretty big impact on PAE litigation. Um, in my sense, um, we also see in the data that PAE litigation seemed to kind of take off um, more in the mid two thousands, um, around two thousand seven, like a, so, like a year or two after eBay. Um, and it's possible that a lot of disputes that were before eBay, uh, it would would be easier for non practicing entities to obtain injunctions in court. And so in a sense there, if you're, you know, if I'm, if I, I'm an NPE and I go to a, a practicing entity with this patent and say, with, with a demand letter um, and, and say, pay me or I'm going to sue um, and seek an injunction that and seek an injunction portion um, might have hung large enough combined with the fact that maybe these assertions were less frequent in the first half of the 2000s. Um, that you that perhaps and this is conjecture a bit, but um, I think it's a story that sort of makes sense. Um, that more of these disputes in, in the first half of the two thousands they settled, 
uh, out of court before our lawsuit was even filed. Um, but so what happened, and I say this, you know, it's, our data is showing 2007, a jump up in PA litigation. This, that's two, that's four years before the American Invents Act. And there's been, at the time, I think most researchers and policymakers don't believe this anymore, but around the time in the, the American in, uh, the American Invents Act, um, there was an argument that um, the changes that made in the, our joinder rule were basically post-American Invents Act, you had to, this is not exactly right, but but close, but you, you had to file, you could only file a lawsuit against one infringer at a time. So you would have to have, if you thought that there are 20 companies out there suing distinct companies um, that were infringing your patent before American Invents Act, you could file one lawsuit and lump all those 20 defendants together. Afterwards, you were roughly forced to file 20 different lawsuits. And so we see that in the data where there's a big, there's a step up in the number of cases that are filed. Um, but the, and some people have said, okay, well, we see this big jump up in PA litigation after American Invents Act, um, but it's an artifact of that joinder rule. Now, the data shows us that PA litigation really started to take off uh, four or five years before. And the jump up was pretty impressive to where um, in our earliest uh, year in the, in the data in 2000, uh, we find there's only about 15% of all the lawsuits in the United States were by PAEs. And that, um, that percentage jumps all the way up to 45% uh, in 2010, wow. a year before mm-hmm. the American Advance Act. Yeah. And so that was in that then. So it hit that in 2010. And then it was it bounced around a little bit between kind of the low 40s and 50 percent for several years until my most recent research that I've done um, looks at this case. Well, actually, before I get to that. So what I'm you know, the most recent thing that happened is two years ago, we had this TC Heartline decision restricting where parties can file their lawsuits, which courts that had a Mm -hmm. devastating impact on the amount of litigation in the Eastern district of Texas. Um, but stepping back from that, so that was May, 2017. Um, one thing the American events act did do is that it authorized inter-parties review, um, where now people are, had a more streamlined and easier process to challenge the validity of patents, um, outside of court before an administrative agency. Um, and that really came online, um, and I think end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And, um, and I think that had, so a couple years actually before then the next big change was, was Alice versus CLS bank, uh, which sort of restricted what's patentable in the IT and software space. Um, but I think the combination of the availability of IPRs is a cheap way to invalidate patents, plus Alice limiting which software patents are available. And there's evidence that um, um, quite a few people have u- used Alice to knock out patents um, earlier in, 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 in litigation than had been uh, possible before. Um, that dampened PA litigation, um, but my sense is that um, it was – you might have had about a 10, somewhere around a 10% decline um, from 2012 through two th- through TC Heartland. But then TC Heartland really, um, really seems like it might have uh, knocked down the amount of PA litigation by another 15 to 25%, possibly even, um, just by restricting where, um, where these plaintiffs can file their lawsuits. 
And so what we saw was there is actually um, comparing a project I'm working on, comparing filings in in um, United States a year before to a year after this this decision. That said, in brief, basically that you have to file either where defendants have regular regular do regular business and where infringement occurred or where they re, where they reside, mm-hmm. which the court interpreted as meaning where they're incorporated. And so before that decision, the federal circuit had interpreted resides more broadly to basically mean wherever a corporate mm-hmm. defendant had um, where there is uh, permissible jurisdiction in which for Matt, basically for a lot of these American big tech companies that do business everywhere, um, you can sue in any of the, any of the district courts in the United States. And of course, so you look at the year before TC Heartland um, and something like two thirds of all the PAE mm-hmm. lawsuits in the country were filed in the Eastern district of Texas. And, um, and 90% of all the lawsuits filed in the Eastern district of Texas were PAE cases. And the impact of TC Heartland basically the year after saw a uh, 70% mm-hmm. decline in the number of lawsuits in the Eastern district of Texas compared to the year before. So that it basically equates to a, you, and so basically, so you had in, so I said 70%, think about it, this is wow. like 1100 mm-hmm. fewer cases were filed in the Eastern district of Texas the year after compared to the year before. And sort of my, my rough preliminary estimates are that about half of those cases probably, um, um, if we want to be more, m- more conservative, we could say, you know, somewhere between maybe 300 and 700 cases were not filed because of the decision with the remainder of those cases lost by, uh, lost in the All Eastern right. District of Texas. Um, that was a really very good overview of the de- development of NPEs and PAEs. Um, so we're just, just very shortly because we have talked a lot now, (laughs) but just very shortly, I would be very interested in like, where do you see this going? Like the, the NPEs or the PAEs, do they have a future? Do they, will they still make money? Uh, will it be interesting for people or for, for, will it be an interesting business model in the future or will it go away? Or where do you think, where do you see this going? I think it's hard to say now, and that's even for myself, who's been in my my own research results and, and kind of my my priors. I've been I've been uh, a bit of a critic of PAEs and also, you know, at least software patents as 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 they were um, as they were granted uh, twenty years ago. Um, that I think when you combine all these different recent reforms that we've had, um, I think that the punchline answer is is I don't know. Um, because even if you have, even if the estimate here is that even after Alice, we restricting patentable subject matter, even after creating um, administrative uh, challenges um, to validity, even after restricting where cases are filed, you still have about 70 to 80 percent of the volume of PAE litigation that you had um, right before uh, the American Events Act. And I, so I would say, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not dead. It's, it's weekend. Um, I'm not sure what else, if anything, we need to do um, to try to weaken it more. It could be that, um, that as some of these reforms um, percolate in, in these limitations to patentability, that you're going to have fewer granted patents that sort of fit the PAE business model. I mean, this is a possibility. Um, I know one of the, the, probably the type of patent reform that's most likely to uh, 
past Congress and um, and the current Congress is um, something that would take back some of the li- limitations on um, on patentable subject matter from Alice, basically. Um, so it could be that even though the courts might have, if if something something of uh, um, you know, creating a sub- subjective and somewhat difficult to implement test in Alice, um, it could be that the uh, that the politicians in Washington decide that. Um, because we don't like the way that these patentable subject matter cases applied to biotech, um, we might roll it back in a way that gives PAEs an opening um, and, t- and sort of gives them back some of what they might have lost from Alice and some of these other decisions. Um, and then I think also it's like what what's what's going to be the what's going to be the next wave, the new technology. Um, so if we're looking at um, what are we going to do with um, uh, artificial intelligence patents. So, and if there ends up being more, more of a prolifer- proliferation of, um, granted artificial intelligence patents, this could be, this could be a, a next wave new type of, um, of, uh, asset that, uh, could be used, could be useful for patent assertion entities. So to me, it's not at all clear that, um, that the PA business model is dead or dying. I think a lot of recent um, activity is, is sort of cut back at it. Yes. Uh, but I think that's it's also something that's going to be around for a while. <laughs> All right. So we have talked a long time now about um, <laughs> NPEs and your very cool um, Stanford NPE litigation database. Um, can you just again repeat where people can find this database and where can people contact you if they have any questions about this database? Thanks, Rolf. I'd love to. So the website is npe.law.stanford.edu. And uh, my email address is smiller at law.stanford.edu. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope your database will be a big success and I hope you will have a lot of fun with it in the next years. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes And it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. 
As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.